Welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. In this podcast, we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to help you navigate the infinitely developing, renewable world of steel. Welcome to Steel Stories. I'm your host, David Kirkpatrick. And today we are going to delve into the surprisingly interesting, surprisingly complicated story of international trade and steel. I think you'll be surprised when you learn the history of this complicated situation and the unique story of steel and trade. There is no other product for which you would hear a similar story. So today our really excellent expert guest is Ben Carl who manages U.S. Steel's international trade law and policy initiatives. He's a lawyer at U.S. Steel. Before being at U.S. Steel, he practiced at two international law firms that focused on trade and trade policy. He also currently serves on the Industry Trade Advisory Committee on Steel to advise the Office of the United States Trade Representative and the United States Department of Commerce on trade policy. So he is a real expert, as you will definitely learn. And welcome, Ben. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you for having me, David. So the story of steel and steel trade is a very good topic for steel stories. So start out by just telling us, what is it that makes steel different from so many other things when it comes to trade? Great question. For centuries, iron and steel have been important for countries, you know, strategically, because steel is the fundamental building block of modern civilization, military, industries, economies, also politically, economically, because the steel industry provides millions of good jobs and pensions that support millions of families and communities. Back in 2013, the Obama administration identified 16 economic and infrastructure sectors that are critical to the minimum operation of government. And I want to list each one because every single one requires significant steel and combined, they account for over half of steel demand. So chemical production, commercial facilities, communications, critical manufacturing, dams, defense, industrial base, emergency services, energy. So energy production, transmission, distribution, financial services, food, agricultural, government facilities, healthcare, information technology, nuclear, transportation systems, and water systems. That doesn't even mention you know, the other half of steel that we're probably more familiar with You know, for appliances, autos, construction. So steel is everywhere. And since then, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic really reminded us that reliable national supply chains and manufacturing bases are critical to support frontline responders, but then eventually the recovery. One more example, even more recently, is the global supply chain shocks from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You, know, you have the actual supply chains, but you can have there, you have the heroic Ukrainian steel mill and workers fighting, literally fighting the Russians. If steel is everywhere. And then finally, you're looking towards the future we face global decarbonization. Steel is once again a fundamental building block from the investments and innovations that we need to decarbonize the carbon intensive steel industry itself, but also supplying the green steel for electric vehicles, wind, carbon capture, hydrogen, you name it. So 
there's so many examples of how important steel is and how different it is from other materials or commodities. Okay. Well, certainly those are many reasons why steel is important. We love those reasons on this podcast. But there is one word, I think, that defines why steel trade in competitiveness is so different and weird, and that word is overcapacity. So I want you to tell us what does that mean and why is it a problem and how did we get here? And feel free to give us a little bit of history. I guess take one step back and first talk about you know, the evolution of the global steel industry, you know, just having the capacity and the trade and how that leads to overcapacity. Because what we mean when we say overcapacity is there's way more steel being made in the world than the world really needs. And that complicates it because every country wants to have their own steel industry. Just this is my amateur summary. Exactly. So for the little history lesson, you know, we can go all the way back to 1750. British Parliament passed the Iron Act, which encouraged the American colonies to produce and export to Britain iron. And back then it was, you know, iron bogs and, you know, very different from the iron resources today and banned, banned steel production in the colony. So following that, the first U.S. Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, which my kids will find it cool that I'm somehow invoking Hamilton, delivered his seminal report on the subject of manufacturers to the first Congress, 1791. And he beautifully articulated what we've talked about already, why domestic manufacturing capacity, which is built on steel, is essential for national security. Then you, you know, kind of fast forward through all the technological breakthroughs in steel making, 19th, 20th century, that enabled both America's industrial revolution, but also enabled the U.S. and its allies to win the first world war, the second world war. And the U.S. steel industry was at significant advantage following the war because it was the only real steel industry that wasn't severely damaged by the war. So the U.S. steel industry was predominant earlier this century and you know, not even 100 years ago. You mean predominant on a global basis, really? On a global basis. Yet 1945, we produced two-thirds of the world's iron and three-quarters of the world's steel. Wow. Right after World War II. Exactly. Yep. So then you go back across the ocean, 1951, to secure peace, prosperity, you avoid another continental war. Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and West Germany created the European Steel and Coal Community. And this is the predecessor to the European Union. Then you go to 50s, 70s. That's when trade becomes involved because that's when the U.S. government pursues massive liberalization, reducing tariffs on steel products. Wait a minute. Why did the U.S. government reduce tariffs on steel products in the 70s? Well, it wasn't just steel products. Is on most products, many products, especially raw materials and intermediate products. Just as a general trade liberalizations. Exactly. Yeah, the general agreement on tariffs and trade, eventually the WTO continued trend of basically unilaterally disarming on steel tariffs. So the peak of the U.S. steel industry was in the 70s. We peaked at about 138 million metric tons of production. Ever since then, our share has gone down globally. And that's all because of imports. And that starts with imports from Japan. You get into the 90s when China begins to boom. Chinese steel 
production exceeds U.S. steel production in 93. Wait, in 1993 is the first time China produced more steel than the U.S. Okay, just trying to digest all this. This is complicated. A couple years later, then China becomes the world's largest steel producer, surpassing Japan. Then 2017, so six years ago, China now at that time produces more steel than the rest of the world combined. China produced about 870 million tons of steel, and the rest of the world produces just under that, 865. And that has continued more or less to this day? It gets a little worse because during COVID, the rest of the world shuts down, essentially. Global steel production declines about 7%, but China keeps on producing, keeps on producing. And by 2020, they've produced 1 billion tons of steel a year. 1 billion with a B. Okay, how much steel are we producing at this point? The U.S. is producing less than 100 million tons. So China is producing 10 times what we produce in terms of steel? You know, one is first immediately forced to ask, what was the U.S. thinking back in the 70s when we started encouraging all this trade in steel? It wasn't just on steel. So that's the first point. You know, it was a broader liberalization. It's the free trade theory of political economy, essentially. It wasn't just steel, but it was for all products. There's been massive liberalization of trade, and the U.S. has very low normal tariffs. Later today, or maybe another episode, we'll talk about these special remedial tariffs that we've had to resort to. But at first, there's just the basic normal tariffs on imports, and those for steel are essentially zero for the United States. Okay, but you know, as you're going to explain to us in much more detail as we go on, today, the U.S. has to really work to keep its steel industry competitive, but it doesn't seem like that was anticipated and that somehow there was a little bit of blindsided going on, like, well, we have this biggest steel industry in the world, therefore everybody should make steel. But wait a minute. Oh, no, now we can't make it up. No, I guess you just have to take me through that psychology of American steel attitudes there. Well, I think it was trade theory overall. Overall liberalization of trade, good for all or good for most, but there are sectors, steel sector especially, that do pay the price for that openness. So to have that openness be politically acceptable, you do need to provide other ways to address imports. Those are those other tools. So now instead of focusing on just flat tariff on all steel imports, now we have to focus on the worst actors, follow all these laws and rules and different tools that are available to address the imports. How much steel is made in the world today, 10 times more in China than here, etc. But at the aggregate, how much steel is made and how much steel does the world use? Context is obviously important for this. This year, the OECD estimates that global steel capacity, so the ability to make steel, will reach 2.5 billion tons. Of that, roughly 1.9 billion is actually produced each year. So that's the difference is over capacity. The difference between global capacity and production for the globe, that difference is about 600 million tons. So that 1.9 billion tons is utilized by the world economy, more or less. Exactly. So it's the overcapacity, the 600 million tons. And to put that in context, that's roughly six times the entire U.S. steel market of about 100 million tons. It's over 20 times total U.S. steel imports. 
So in other words, that global overcapacity could inundate the U.S. market multiple times over without even diverting a ton of existing production. Like we're just talking about overcapacity. If people chose to build all the steel they could build. Exactly. But why is it then, so tell me in big picture, why do people have capacity that they don't use? Well, that's a good question. Like we've talked about, you know, steel is a strategic industry. So governments have interest in having a domestic steel industry. Some governments use you know, non-market methods to build and support that steel industry. So subsidies, you know, other government measures, government state ownership of, of the industry, you, know, you name it. There's The list is infinite, really. They build those industries up. They're deliberately building them to export. You know, So building more than they know their own country needs for steel. Or, or they just encourage it so much that the industries want to continue to produce and export. So it creates excess production, excess exports, which then filter in through the supply chain and eventually either find their you know, direct imports into the U.S. or that goes through other countries. It's diverting other sources. So it's continued like knock-on effect. That is the whole global overcapacity challenge. The U.S., it doesn't sound like has that much overcapacity itself. Is that roughly accurate? Yes, that, that is very accurate. And that's because you know, we're a market economy based on uh, supply and demand. And, and we have these measures on imports, but they don't block imports. They just level the playing field. And so it's going to increase the price for the steel to a fair price. It's not going to block the import. Those measures, in terms of import measures, just address the worst impact of overcapacity, which is imports. It doesn't reduce you know, a ton of overcapacity. And it also doesn't address U.S. industry export opportunities or lack thereof due to global overcapacity. It sounds like one of the reasons many other countries have so much overcapacity is in part because those are not such market-driven economies. The government is more directly involved in the economy in many of those countries and the government has made a strategic competitiveness decision to build steel even beyond perhaps what they need in order to, I don't know, you tell me, do what? What do those countries think they're achieving by creating overcapacity? Well, they think they're protecting their own national economic security. They're trying to ensure full employment which you know, some of these countries like China, you know, they're more focused on having people work and having civil rest, not unrest. Just more nuanced versions. Other places, even in Europe, where you know maybe a merger is being proposed and the government approves the merger subject to the requirement that no steel mill facility be shut down or no people be laid off. Or the lack of a bankruptcy proceeding prevents the rationalization of capacity. So the capacity is sticky. It's hard to get rid of it once it's there. So in the big picture, the reason steel matters so much to every country is because every country requires a tremendous amount of steel for almost all of its own critical industries, transportation, infrastructure, etc. So nobody wants to be in the position, theoretically, of not being able to get the steel they need and as a result, they end up building more capacity than they actually need, which then incents many of them often to try to export what they build that is beyond their own needs. 
And that then pressures our industry here in the United States. Is that roughly an accurate summary? You've got it. Very well said. I mean, we want to maintain the competitiveness of our own steel industry for exactly the same reasons, right? Because we too don't want to be caught with, uh, without enough in the event of an emergency, right? What would you say is the rationale in the U.S. for all the tariffs and other trade measures that we do have, which we're going to explore in another episode? What would you say we're trying to achieve faced with all of this trade aggression, so to speak? I think there's multiple reasons and purposes depending on the different tools. Overall, it goes back to this national economic security. You need steel. You need a steel industry. There's strategic national security reasons. For different tools, there are different reasons. Some are focused on the worst actors for unfairly traded imports. And those are ones where it's you can specifically tie those imports to a subsidy that's incentivizing those exports. Right. A lot of those countries subsidize their steel industries. Absolutely. Or you can show that there's price discrimination, really, that they're selling the steel product in the U.S. for less than they're selling it in their home market because their home market is protected, or they're selling steel in the U.S. for a lower price than even cost to make it if you weren't subsidized. So that's kind of the worst actors. And then there's also market adjustment. As we're liberalizing trade, especially decades ago, there are mechanisms that would safeguard against surges, regardless of whether they're unfairly traded or not. Then you have measures like national security, when you talk about it, we have U.S. Steel, a couple of other major U.S. Steel companies, and the government, in a sense, is acting to ensure that companies like U.S. Steel stay strong and healthy and profitable. That's, in effect, one of the primary goals, right? One of the primary goals for national security purposes, so that's Section 232 land, that is to have a sustainable, you know, resilient domestic steel industry. But you know, earlier we were talking about how the U.S. government has similar motives to some of these other governments. And for many, it is true. You want to have your own steel industry. You want to have good jobs and things like that. But the U.S. government, uh, fortunately, is much less hands-on than the Chinese government, for example, or even many of the European governments. Now, we were talking about you know, decarbonization earlier. I know, you know these podcasts have talked about sustainability, and that presents another challenge for overcapacity because... As countries decarbonize, they are going to be building new steel mills, cleaner, green steel. Other places, they're going to build blast furnaces still because certain countries don't have 2050 goals for net zero emissions. They have 2060 or 2070 goals. So they still have a whole blast furnace you know, life cycle left. And to the extent they are going to build an electric arc furnace, it's less likely to just be replacing a blast furnace in places like China, because for all the reasons we've talked about, how politically challenging it is to just close a steel mill and not add to this excess capacity. So it's feeding and feeding and feeding. And then, of course, there's also kind of the downstream impact of all this. You put tariffs on steel, and then all of a sudden, steel-intensive goods start coming in, from automobiles, heavy machinery. If they can't ship raw steel They'll ship it in the form of some product that they build it into, and that is, in effect, a form of circumvention of a trade barrier that was put in for a good reason. It could be circumvention. It could be evasion. It could just be you know, moving to the next step. But that imports of steel-intensive products is reducing demand of domestic steel 
just like an import of steel would be. So it's has a very similar effect and it's much more difficult because like we've already talked about how many things are made out of steel. It gets very complicated very quickly. Let's look at the U.S. industry in more detail for a second and step back. You know, here we have the situation you've described where post-World War II, the U.S. dominated global steel production. Then in the last 30 years, China has come to dominate global steel production and they now produce 10 times as much or have the capacity to produce 10 times as much as we do. What has that done, that whole chain of events, to the U.S. steel industry, which presumably the reason the U.S. entered into all of these efforts to try to restrict unfair trade was because bad things were happening and would have gotten worse. So talk a little bit about what the impact of the import competition has been on the industry in recent decades. So overcapacity fuels the imports. It's very clear, the impact. I mean, it's if those imports are left unchecked, as they essentially were you know, in the 70s and 80s, steel mills closed. The industry loses market share. Prices fall. Like I said, mill closures, layoffs, financial distress. And all of that threatens the sustainability of the entire industry, which, you know, as we all know now, is fundamental to our national economic securities. For the steel industry, you can really see the impacts of imports and unfair trade competition. I guess, but let's talk a little bit about China and their thinking. Why have they created such a humongous steel industry? Is it simply to create jobs? Is it defending their own potential national security from their own point of view? Do they want to kill the American steel industry? What do you think some of their motives are? They needed a steel industry themselves. I mean, they are going through their own development. So they do need steel. They don't need so much steel that they need to export so much of it. But they need to have a steel industry. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's basically they want to be the dominant player in all of these strategic sectors. It's all part of their, not just steel. No, it's everything. You have chips. So they are, like we've talked about, they produce more steel than the rest of the world combined. But they have an even larger dominant footprint in other key strategic much smaller, but strategic markets, you know, think of rare earth minerals and, you know, solar, you know, all of those things, they are all over it. And steel was, you know, got them there. It got them to that technological, you know, development point. I won't try to speak for the Chinese governments and what they want to do to the U.S. steel industry, but they've certainly injured it significantly with direct imports. You know, they continue to expand capacity. And it's not just in China. They have their Belt and Road Initiative they are expanding capacity throughout Southeast Asia. Again, contributing to global overcapacity. They're just going out to dominate this sector like they try to dominate every other sector that they think is you know, strategic. And you talk about them helping other countries develop their own steel industries. Talk about some of the other countries that are aggressively building up their steel industries. I mean, aside from China, where else is there excess capacity and where is more capacity being added at the moment? So the first question about where else is there significant excess capacity? It's the big countries you think of, Japan, Brazil, Russia, in Europe, Germany. You know, the, all these countries have excess capacity. They're all built on exporting significant amounts of steel. In terms of countries they're really kind of skyrocketing from Chinese investments. It's the Southeast Asian countries. It's the Vietnams, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia. 
Every one of those countries is building steel mills now, basically. Yep. And it's mainly blast furnace and it's mainly Chinese owned or financed. And then you also have the Middle East. Because of our trade relationship or lack thereof, really, with Iran, we don't have to worry about direct imports from there. But they are now built up capacity in you know, a Chinese government five-year plan style, and they are now the 10th largest steel producer in the world. Again, it shows you how strategically important it is. You know, With recent events in Israel, I mean, Iran is going to supply all the steel for that war. But China is by far the largest in terms of volume, and they are growing their exports while global steel trade is shrinking. It's still very significant, still hundreds of millions of tons, but it is shrinking but Chinese exports are increasing of steel and steel intensive goods. Maybe you should talk a little bit about the evolving political mindset in the United States faced with these complexities without getting into the too much of the details of some of the various laws, which I think could really easily occupy an entire episode. But it does seem like there have been sort of cycles of concern on the part of government. And maybe you should just explain what the current thinking is and maybe how it's changed in recent years. I think there was this overall free trade ideology leading up to President Trump. And President Trump flipped all that on its head and focused on domestic manufacturing, domestic jobs, you know, this America first trade policy with the section 232, which we can go into detail later. And then President Biden has essentially continued that in terms of the trade policy. Continue the Section 232, he's continued the China tariffs, continues to focus on trade enforcement. You know, trade enforcement, we always say, is a bipartisan priority these days. And then you have events that I mentioned earlier, you know, like COVID. Supply chain shocks and COVID, I think, really reinforced the importance of having resilient supply chains over the least expensive supply chains. The same thing as the Russian invasion. So recent events, I think, have just further reinforced the current bipartisan appreciation for the need to have a strong domestic manufacturing base, which absolutely includes steel, but includes chips and electric vehicles and everything else. So I think there's been a real paradigm shift you know, over the past couple of years. And I will not take credit for it all. Pure coincidence that I joined U.S. Steel about six years ago. <laughs> well, you certainly are deep in, in these issues. There's no question about that. Prior to Trump's sort of change of heart at the national level, I mean, and we're not talking politics here at all, but it sounds like the industry must have welcomed that and that there must have been sort of a feeling of some alarm prior to that. Or am I wrong in thinking that? So leading up to 2014, that's when there was a significant increase in imports, unfairly traded imports of steel. And that's when the domestic industry had to pull out of these levers had to use some of these tools very aggressively. And they resulted in significant anti-dumping and countervailing duties, AD, CBD, on many, many of the major steel products. Then though, we have this very highly technical term, whack-a-mole. So we hit China straight on, no more direct imports, you know, 500% duties. But then they start shipping hot rolled coil to Vietnam, coal rolling it, sending it to the U.S. and saying it's Vietnamese steel, so it's not subject to these duties. So then you file circumvention proceedings, and we can talk more about that later, but you can counteract that. But then it goes to the next stage, and the next stage is either, you know, building a whole facility somewhere else or 
going downstream, making the next downstream product, or even going upstream. You know, they could send their raw materials to make steel. So it's a game of whack-a-mole. And for those who aren't old enough to remember, you know, it's the arcade game where you have the mallet and you hit the mole that pops out of the hole, one hole, and it pops the next one is constant, you know. Every time you hit one, something pops up somewhere else. Yeah. That was sort of the situation that prevailed, especially, you know, 2014 through 2016 kind of thing. So those measures, those actions helped. Those tools are like lasers. And it's really hard when it's a global problem to focus on a few actors. So then that led to another surge of imports. And that's when we get to 2018 in section 232. And that's when it was tariffs across the board. Eventually there's other, you know, quotas and other measures, but that's when it was a much like a sledgehammer instead of a, a laser. Maybe you should quickly summarize what section 232 is and how it differed from all the other measures that came before. Thank you. So section 232 is a national security law that enables the president to in, impose import restrictions that for imports that threaten national security. So the focus is on national security and it's a very broad concept of national security like we've been talking about, national economic security. And so it's, the law has been on the books for decades, since the 60s, and President Trump dusted it off and used it for steel, also used it for aluminum. It industry has tried to use it before, but it never resulted in actual measures for steel. And so initially it was a 25% tariff you know, on all steel imports. That was in 2018. Yeah, it was in 2018. And then eventually over time, you know, there were negotiations with countries. So certain countries got free passes, certain countries agreed to quotas, so volume limits rather than a tariff. And certain countries under President Biden, you know, agreed to tariff rate quotas, which are similar to tariffs. There's basically zero tariffs within the quota. And then once you hit the quota, it's not a hard block. It's then you pay the tariff. So there's lots of different versions of these measures for different countries and different sources. But overall, the program remains. It's in place. You know, it's survived legal challenge after legal challenge. It's addressing the whack-a-mole problem that, you know, traditional tools weren't able to address. Without going too much more into the details of the various mechanisms, in general, it sounds like the imposition of this national security-based tariff by the Trump administration did sort of stabilize the situation in a way that it needed to be stabilized in your view. Is that a fair statement? Yes. And I would say it's the anti-dumping countervailing duty measures that were imposed in 2016 plus the 232 that combined to provide that support for the domestic industry. And you've seen the investments following that. I mean, billions and billions of dollars. It's supported the industry's you know, decarbonization and moving up the value chain in terms of making the most advanced steels. So it, it's working and, and it should continue. And that goes back you know, to my original point. Until there is some solution for global overcapacity and all of its you know, causes and impacts, the U.S. and every other country should use all the unilateral tools they have to address the worst impact of that, to address you know, the imports. It's working. It's a constant process because obviously the foreign governments and the foreign exporters and producers and the U.S. importers all are going to try to avoid those tariffs and quotas and measures. So it's all about enforcement. These measures are only as good as they are enforced. 
And that gets us back to, you know, the whack-a-mole game. It sort of reminds me, I keep having in my head an image like the Dutchman with his finger in the dike. I mean, it's like for the U.S. steel industry, it's kind of like the Netherlands with the ocean. It's like there's a huge flood always pressing at all of the entry points trying to get in. And if it were to all get in, essentially it would, I guess, more or less destroy the U.S. industry. So all these different tools to keep things relatively stable or have evolved. I have two final questions for you. One is, you mentioned before that until we have some kind of macro solution, we're going to keep doing this whack-a-mole. Is it possible, in your opinion, to come up with some kind of macro solution? That's a great question. I think it's absolutely possible, technically possible, to address global overcapacity, to reduce global overcapacity. Realistically, it's it's much more challenging, and we can talk about decades of history of you know, international negotiations. There's been no shortage of international negotiations on, on steel and on, on overcapacity. There is the OECD actually has a steel committee that focuses on these challenges. There's been G20 efforts, you know, presidents from both parties. It's just extremely challenging for all, for all the reasons we've talked about today. It's worth at least noting that you know, the U.S. and the EU are currently trying to negotiate what they're calling a global arrangement on both steel decarbonization, but also steel overcapacity as they're related. You know, stay tuned to see the outcome of those negotiations. But there is a decades of a history of negotiations and initiatives trying to address this. It's really hard because you have, like anything else, you know, multilaterally, you have to get the biggest player in the room, which is China, to agree to those restrictions. That's very, very challenging. Yeah, and that's not an issue that just affects the steel industry. Clearly, that's flying in a lot of arenas at the moment. And hopefully, we'll get down the road where we all can kind of come together on a number of issues, not holding my breath on that. Okay, what about this? How would you characterize the global economic health of the U.S. industry and the global industry now? I mean, in the face of all of these complexities, would you say that right now, let's start with the U.S., that the U.S. industry is in okay shape? Is it fundamentally threatened? Are there massive changes still needed? What about that? Would you say we're at a decent place right now for the time being? Yes, I think so several years ago when it was, it was at the peak of recent times in terms of trade protection for the steel industry, we still have many of these anti-dumping, countervailing duty orders that are focused on the worst actors. We still have Section 232 focused on you know, the whack-a-mole problem. We still have other measures focused at least on China in terms of steel, you know, steel intensive goods. So it's in a better position than it was not too long ago, but it's it requires you know, constant vigilance. And I was talking about you know, that 600 million figure, 600 million tons for global overcapacity. That is growing and it's getting back to the level of 2014 when we had the last steel crisis. And then now we have the decarbonization part on top. So it is, I think, we're, the U.S. steel industry is in a good position. We have strong trade enforcement that you know, we're confident will continue for the foreseeable future. But the problem of global overcapacity is increasing. And so it just becomes that much more important to try to actually address it, which is much easier said than done. But I'll still submit that it's possible. 
Yeah, looking at some of the documents you said over that I was looking at before this preparing, even a country like Zimbabwe is building its own steel industry now. So I guess one thing that seems to be happening is that as more and more countries industrialize and enter a more middle-class economy, they want to have a steel industry too. And there's a lot of countries in that position. So until we start thinking of these things as more global resources and every country feels they've got to fight for themselves, it's almost a problem that's destined to get worse. It is something that is growing problem at the macro level and the trends are all in the wrong direction in terms of you know, global overcapacity. And so it makes the use of the unilateral tools that much more important, but it also makes you know doing everything we can to try to get to that a global enforceable solution that actually reduces global overcapacity, reduces the tons, reduces that 600 million tons of excess capacity. There's a lot of work to be done still. I'll say that. Thank you so much for joining us on Steel Stories and addressing this incredibly kaleidoscopically complicated and challenging arena of steel trade. There's a lot more to be said. We may return to this in the not distant future. So Stay tuned. Thank you again to all of you for being here with us at Steel Stories. And thank you again to you, Ben. And we'll see you next time at Steel Stories. Thank you, David. I really appreciate your engaging questions. And this is a lot of fun. Thank you. Great. Thanks again. Steel Stories is brought to you by U.S. Steel. To find out more about our sustainable steel solutions and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for U.S. Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at US Steel, thanks for listening.